Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 10th, 2022, and um, we've had a bit of a 19th century feel to the show this week. Yesterday, um, I interviewed a lovely woman, Linda Hirschman, the author of The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved a Nation. It's a book about um, abolishing slavery, uh, the greatest evil, I think, of the 19th century, perhaps in history. Um, the book is partially about Frederick Douglass, the great African-American uh, abolitionist. And it's partly about a woman who I actually know about, the Contessa Maria Weston Chapman, one of the, the great abolitionist activists of, of the mid-19th century um, in, uh, in Boston, um, Massachusetts. Uh, Hirschman reminds us that these struggles in the 19th century remain relevant. She had an interesting piece uh, last week in the Atlantic magazine, the fight for democracy will be a long, long haul. And she suggests for guidance, we should turn to the abolitionists who led the campaign against slavery in America. Today, we are back in the 19th century, but we are in Britain rather than the United States. And I'm absolutely thrilled that we have um, a truly iconic uh, writer, Antonia Fraser. She has a new book out. It came out last year in the UK. It will come out in May in the US. It's called The Case of the Married Woman. Um, Caroline Norton and her fight for justice uh, for, woman, uh, for women. The, uh, the British uh, subtitle is a 19th century heroine who wanted justice for women. So the British and the Americans think differently about this. Um, and I'm thrilled that uh, Antonia Fraser is joining us from her home just near Notting Hill in London. Antonia, welcome. Thank you. I don't want to be too crude, Antonia, and compare the fate of women uh, in the 19th century with the fate of black slaves. But are there comparisons? Um, I suppose so. I mean, you can compare anything. Um, I, I think... I'm not sure it's really a very helpful comparison um, because the, um, the fate of women was in many ways extremely uh, limited, difficult, as we'll probably discuss, but nothing compared to the fate of slaves. Um, so I'm not sure it, it helps us, really. Let's um, talk about, Antonia, this remarkable woman who, 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 who you... Um who is the central character in your new book, The Case of the Married Woman, um, Caroline Elizabeth Sarah Norton. Why did you choose to write a book about her? You've written many iconic books um, about you know, Maria, Marie Antoinette, Mary Queen of Scots, some of the most famous people in, uh, famous women in history as well as men. Less people will be familiar with Caroline Norton. Why did you choose to write a book about her? Well, Andrew, I wanted to write a book centred on a trial. I'm very interested in the law. I'm a bit of a lawyer monkey. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a son who's a distinguished 
Loyana, son-in-law, but I'm very interested in the subject. And I thought the drama of trial would be a fascinating center of a book. And I just dimly remembered about the trial of Caroline Norton, just um, dimly, not really very much. And one of my granddaughters was then reading for the bar. She's now a barrister. She wanted, uh, you know, gainful employment to support herself. So I said, go on, find this trial for me. And um, she brilliantly found me the whole transcript of the trial. And I read it and I was absolutely hooked. You know, it, it was a contemporary transcript. And I, from that moment on, I thought I've got to write this book. Well, I didn't really know much about Caroline Norton, nor I find in England did anyone else. So it's very exciting. It was exciting for me and I'm excited um, you know, to be able to pass it on to my readers. The title, if 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 one hadn't, uh, one didn't know it was by a biographer, a distinguished historian like yourself, the case of the married woman, sounds a little bit like Agatha Christie, the case <laughs> of the married woman. But of course, there's nothing fictional about it. It's all fact. Tell me about this case. What is, what was the trial at the heart of her life that you built this book about? I'll tell you, but I'm. I will just say there's nothing wrong with the name Agatha Christie. If people come to my book expecting Agatha Christie, they may be a bit disappointed, but here's to Agatha Christie. Well, perhaps anyway. people will go to Agatha Christie's books looking for a bit of Antonia Fraser too. I think it goes both ways, doesn't it? Well, that, that I should be so lucky. There, I tell you what happened. Caroline Norton um, married to George Norton, young, flirtatious, attractive, had a sort of salon in London to which... To put it mildly, Antonia, I've been reading the book. I mean, she sounds absolutely stunning. I mean, the, the, one well, of the great beauties of her day. I think so. I, 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 um, I think she was, all the painters were mad about her, you know, black hair and white skin and huge eyes and heavy black eyebrows. And one of three sisters of a... Of a, of a a romantically disreputable family. The father went to jail. She grew up living in uh, Hampton Court. It's quite a story. Yes, it is. The Sheridans, Irish blood, people used to say, as though that explained anything. Um, I'm Irish myself. <laughs> I'm Irish myself. <laughs> yeah, and I even have some images of her her grandfather, Thomas Sheridan, who was a soldier, and her grandmother, uh, Elizabeth Ann Sheridan, who was a distinguished beauty and writer and poet. Her father was a, was it a failed writer, essentially, a man who ended up in jail? Um, Tom Sheridan, her grandfather was a very uh, uh, distinguished writer, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, also a, a politician. He wrote The Rivals, The School for Scandal. So there was a lot of sort of um, uh, interesting blood there. Uh, but anyway, to her salon came men and women, and um, along came Lord Melbourne, the politician who is about 30 years older than her. Well, let's, before we get to Lord Melbourne, Antonia, let's talk about this rather dislikable man, George Chapel Norton, who she was married to. I've been scouring the internet and everyone has a photo on the internet. I couldn't find a photo of George Norton. What did he look like? Well, I couldn't find a reliable one for my book and his direct descendant, the present Lord Grantley, was very helpful. And he said, in his opinion, he lives in the house that was once George Norton's, Norton being the family name of Lords Grantley. 
he said that he thinks that George Norton disliked pictures of himself and he destroyed them. I put a little note in my book. So I don't have a picture of what he looked like. He was a pretty miserable guy. You say that, um, you suggest that uh, Caroline married him on the rebound. She was in love with a rather romantic soldier who died very young. And then she ended up with this George Norton character. Well, she was only 19, you know, her sisters were getting married. And she thought, yes, and that's what people did in those days. They didn't have careers in her class. And um, he was much in love with her, which she thought was a good thing. Little did she know. And he was one of those obsessional people. And he became very jealous of her because she was so attractive and people loved her. And in society, he was considered to be rather boring. And it became more and more obsessional. And I'm afraid, awful and unforgivable, um, he started to uh, hit her, you know, to beat her about. Um, and I mean, I think it's unforgivable in any age or any time, domestic violence. But in the 19th century, women were sort of considered property. So you actually could hit your wife. So it, was a, it wasn't illegal to beat your wife up, for, for no. Norton to beat uh, Caroline Norton up? No. Uh, which is a terrible thought, isn't it? I mean, and she was um, she was a young mother as well. She had what three or four children. She had three three little boys quite quickly. So then let's move on. So she was unhappily married uh, to a to an abusive man who was very insecure and obsessed with her. He had young children. She was a beautiful woman. She attracted admirers intellectually and otherwise. And uh, one of them was this man, Lord Melbourne. Um, British aristocrat and who at one point was the British Prime Minister. Um, why is Melbourne so central in the the Norton case? Um, William Lamb, Lord Melbourne, well he was the Prime Minister and um, it, um, when George Norton decided, um, spurred on by his brother who was a hard right Tory, unlike Lord Melbourne, he was spurred on to sue him in order to damage him politically. So that George Norton's obsession that Caroline was having it off with Lord Melbourne was actually encouraged by Tories. And he sued Lord Melbourne for what was called criminal conversation, which we would call adultery. Yeah, and they they they, they, they shortened it to crimcon, didn't they? In the 19th yes. I didn't know much about this. So your, your book is a wonderful introduction to these odd laws in the 19th century, which of course no longer exists. So, so Norton, George Norton went after Lord Melbourne in court, being encouraged by his brother, what, to, to embarrass, to shame his wife, to take the kids or just to get some money? I think um, money was very important to him. And he sued for £10,000, which was like over £100,000 today. Um, and he was keen on that. But I think he also wanted to he was jealous. He wanted to have revenge. I don't think he thought it through, really. How, how political was this case? I can think of other famous 19th century law cases, the, the Dreyfus case, for example, in France. Was this the kind of case that divided a nation or was it less, uh, no. less well known? No, it was less well known. It was a domestic case, you know, adultery. But it, mean, did it get on the equivalent of the front page of the Daily Mail? The Daily Mail now had a piece recently about Caroline Norton and the custody battle that changed the law. There was, of course, uh, a press back in the 19th century. Was it in the news a lot? This yes, case? very much in the news. 
um, I, I was able to read the newspapers. Great thing now to go online and read them. It's fascinating, actually. Um, but um, I have to make the point about the case that Caroline Norton was not present in it. George Norton, two men, George Norton sued Lord Melbourne for adultery with his wife without Caroline Norton being able to have a counsel for defence. So she had to slope off to Hampton Court to stay with her mother while this hideous case bringing her good name, you know, into terrible distribute went on. And the, uh, as I said, the trial is fantastic. I mean, talk about Zimi, you know, the details of the servants. I'll just mention sheets and things like that. Mm. And ruffled half rugs. And... There's a little bit of Agatha Christie in it, or perhaps a little bit of a naughty <laughs> Agatha Christie. Uh, I, I hope so. Um, Agatha Christie's villains generally have more charm than George Norton. Yeah, he was a disgusting character. Um, yeah. and, um, so in a sense, or perhaps in more than a sense, using this term that was familiar to African-Americans, uh, Caroline Norton and English women, they were invisible in the law in 19th century England. Is that fair? Yes. Once they got married, all their rights went into their husband's rights. Um, so she was the invisible woman. Um, she in terms of money and uh, children, and in spite of the fact that she was actually earning money as a writer. Yes, the copyright of her books went to her husband legally. Uh, the custody of her three children went to her husband legally. Um, and she had could have no property, it was all his. So that, um, as she once said, a married woman does not exist. You know, her husband exists. How outraged um, was Caroline? How, 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 how uh, outspoken, explicit a feminist was she? Did she find this profoundly objectionable before well, the case or only once she began to experience this nightmare of being dragged through the courts? Well, can I, can I tell you the end of the story? Because it's to the point. Um, the judge summed up and decided that she was innocent. She and Melbourne were innocent. Well, it's up to readers to make up their mind in my book. And actually, I've had rather fun with what people think. But that's another subject. Anyhow, she's innocent. In spite of being innocent, her husband legally chucks her out of the house, legally takes her children away, and legally continues to live on the money from her books. And she then, she doesn't do what I would have done, which is laying down on the hearthrug and wailed. She then, I mean, she's... Absolutely, her heart's broken, her beloved children. She then instead starts to fight for justice. And she's very active about the infant custody bill, which means a mother has rights to see her children, you know. Which and so, yeah, as, as you say, there were three laws that seem to have come out of this case. The Custody of Infants Act in 1839, um, and, and, and according to Wikipedia, at least, the bill was greatly influenced by the reformist opinions of Caroline Norton. How central was Norton in this custody of in infants act? Well, she lobbied her friends in the House of Commons like mad. Um, and you see, any time anybody said, oh, really, it's not necessary, somebody was able to say, but look at poor Caroline Norton, look what happened to her. I mean, she was a living example of injustice. So I think she was very important. And a couple of other cases, the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857, 
which reformed the law on divorce. What was the change in the law and was, was Norton influential in that as well? Um, yes, I think she was in, in, in uh, protecting women and women's property within marriage if there was a divorce. Uh, we should call it the divorce bill. Up till then, divorce was something you could only get through church courts, ecclesiastical courts, which was very difficult and expensive. So the poor just just went and lived with someone else, you know, without bothering. They couldn't afford it. So it was a great advance for people to be able to divorce legally. And I think she was definitely influential, always looking to the position of women, what would happen to the wife. Really quite a remarkable woman. And the, and the, and the third law that certainly is central to her case is the Married Property, the Married Women's Property Act of 1870 that allowed married women to be the legal owners of the money they earn. I mean, to 21st century women, to women in 2022, Antonia, the idea that, that, that women would own earn money and then not be allowed to keep it is, is, is quite literally absurd, isn't it? Well, it, it's more than absurd. It's incredible. You know, I, I had a divorce, extremely amicable divorce, um, and uh, my first husband was more like Caroline Norton, George Norton. Um, but the idea that he would have ended up with all my uh, money from my books, it is, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And she lived to see these... Um these cases so it might be the, the the title of your book is the case of the married woman but it was actually really the cases of the married woman she she's one of the less well-known figures in terms of the legal emancipation of middle-class women in the 19th century is that fair and i i want to say she was also interested in all women um uh, she was interested in enslaved women particularly and their fate and she pointed to the fact that they had such a high death rate, much higher than men, which I actually never knew till I read it. Um, so, you know, she was out for justice for women in, in general. Um, and, and she certainly was. And I think, Antonia Fraser, you are also, um, a lot of your life has been out for justice for women too. You're the author of uh, the book's out in the UK, The Case of the Married Woman, about Caroline Norton. It's about to come out in, in the US in May. I'm thrilled that we're talking. We're going to take a short break now, Antonio. And after the break, I want to talk more broadly about feminism, what's happened since the 19th century, and one or two other things about your illustrious life. So stay with us, everyone. We're talking to the remarkable writer and uh, I guess iconic figure, uh, Antonia Fraser. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, 
in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Antonia Fraser, the author of a wonderful new book, uh, The Case of the Married Woman, um, a 19th century heroine who wanted justice for women. Uh, Antonia, um, it's Oscar season out here in California, and Kristen Stewart just got nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars for her portrayal of Diana, Princess of Wales. In, it's a wonderful film. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Spencer. Uh, and um, when I was looking at it, uh, when I was watching the film, uh, at least in terms of your book and Caroline Norton, it suddenly occurred to me, maybe things haven't changed so much. Uh, 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 Diana Spencer went to stay with the royal family. She got weighed. She was abused, not physically, but certainly psychologically, at least according to the the film. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but in terms of cases like the Spencer case has much changed over the last 150 years, at least maybe not legally, but culturally, especially for women in the upper classes. Well, I think it has changed enormously, but it hasn't changed for everyone. And I think the former Lady Diana Spencer, uh, I haven't seen the film yet, uh, by the way. It's a great I'm film, I think. Uh, and, and Kristen Stewart's brilliant in it. I, I, I'd like to see it. It's been slightly difficult going to cinemas, but... Um, is it on Netflix? Uh, Netflix. Uh, well, everything always ends up on Netflix. Eventually, yes. well, I'm not sure if it if it is at the moment. I, I think Excellent. it was. Um, it may have either been an Apple or a, an Amazon production, so you can probably find it online. I, I think might. you'd enjoy it. It's it's a beautifully acted film. Well, I I, I certainly look forward to it. But um, you see, I think nothing changes totally, and I think there are still people who have um, the sort of classic upper class. Upbringing for a girl, which is not much education, you know, and little light work, looking after children, and very, very beautiful. And I'm talking about Lady Diana, and um, uh, then there her cousins, the rest of women um, who go to university, like me, you know, and are lucky enough to have a good education, which is what all women should have. So I think Lady Diana was slightly out of her time but I mean I think she was she wasn't in any way abused um, as we've been discussing the matter um, but I think that she was highly uh, vulnerable by nature very appealing and touching and I try to cheer myself that um, if there is an afterlife that Lady Diana can see Prince William and Kate and see what a marvellous job they're making and their divine children, Prince George, you know, and I hope that's a consolation. 
you're still a little bit of a romantic about the royal family, it, it seems. Um, Antonia, I, I, I found an interesting piece from Vogue, uh, actually from April of last year, about you recalling uh, the future Queen Elizabeth's marriage to the Duke of Edinburgh yeah. when you were a, a teenager. Do you still maintain a degree of romance about the royal family and that that whole culture? That's a very good question, Andrew. Um, I was, as you say, a teenager. I, I persuaded my convent school I needed to go to the dentist, which oddly enough was the day of the royal wedding. And I went up with my best friend, who oddly enough needed to go to the dentist too. And we were <laughs> The there. dentist must have been very busy that day. Very busy. And then um, we took our teeth and we went just outside Buckingham Palace, you know, where the memorial is. And we saw the Queen. Uh, well, she wasn't the Queen. She was still just Princess Elizabeth. It was so thrilling. We rushed towards the gates and pushed them open. And we got, all of us, got inside Buckingham Palace. Now, when I came to think about that later, I've got an excellent memory. Um, I thought, no, no, that couldn't have happened. So I checked it in the news online, you know, and it was true. It said members of the public got inside Buckingham Palace. Can you imagine now? Yeah. Anyway, I, yeah. I, I, I am still romantic about the royal family. Perhaps I don't want to go too far with this one, but perhaps not every member. But I'm very romantic about the Queen. I think England was so lucky to have her. She was lucky to have the Duke of Edinburgh. And um, yeah. may, she, may she reign forever. <laughs> you mentioned Diana and, and how abused, certainly psychologically, she was by certain... Well, no, I, didn't, I didn't use the word abuse. Well, the, the film certainly suggests that. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much it has to do with, and, and you suggest that there may have been something a little bit lost about Diana. She hadn't gone to university. You're the opposite of Diana. You're from a very distinguished aristocratic family, uh, but you went to university and you become a prolific author. Your father... Who uh, I grew up in England. He was an, 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 an iconic man, Lord Longford, very eccentric, very distinguished, very brilliant, very controversial. Do you think these girls need fathers like Longford or fathers who expect their girls to do something rather than just show up for debutante parties? Well, I think you've got it slightly wrong. I think my father, who I adored, just seeing his photograph like that touches me. I don't think he thought like that. The force in our family was our mother. And she was not an aristocrat, and she'd want you to know that she was a doctor's daughter and proudly middle class. And it was the middle classes who were punctual, tidy, not extravagant, <laughs> on time, um, didn't miss trains, um, didn't knock over things. Um, was she talking about our father? Quite possibly. <laughs> anyway, um, and she had gone to university herself very early. So I was lucky, great good luck, to have a mother who was keen on women's education. Did you turn out to be more middle class or upper class, Antonio? Did you, do you miss I'm, trains? Do you knock things over? No, I'm, I'm bohemian. Well, the book um, about the 19th century is also about, I guess, would it be fair to describe Caroline Norton as part of that sort of bohemian lifestyle if there was an equivalent in the... 19th century. She was uh, anything but Queen Victoria, wasn't she? Yes, well, of course, Queen Victoria only came on the throne after the case. The, the case for criminal conversation was 1836, 
And if you remember, Queen Victoria comes to the throne 18 in 1837. Right. Um, and so, her, um, and Queen Victoria immediately took over Lord Melbourne as her father figure and her mentor. Um, so I don't think you can't really see her as figuring at, at the court of Queen Victoria at all. But, but, um, but, but, but there were these remarkable women. I mean, she was remarkable. Um, she was a friend of Mary Shelley, the uh, author of Frankenstein, yeah. one of the distinguished literary figures in British history. Was there something in the water in the 19th century, early 19th century, when it came to women, uh, Antonia? Were they somehow, I mean, not all of them, of course, but this this upper class. Another woman who isn't in your book, who I'm fascinated with, I'm not sure how much you know about her, is Ada Lovelace, the daughter yes. of Lord Byron, who essentially invented computer software. Without uh, uh, Ada Lovelace, we probably wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Uh, yes, so it was a remarkable generation of, of upper-class British women in the first half of the 19th century, wasn't it? Well, the answer is you can't keep women down forever. You know, it might have taken hundreds of years. Um, uh, there were things like um, better uh, conditions in childbirth so that women just didn't more or less automatically die, you know. The advent of chloroform in childbirth, which Queen Victoria popularised, things like that made women's lives better, and made them able to concentrate on education. I mean, it took a long time coming, um, but I think the 19th century is very exciting just for that reason. And I agree with you about Lady Lovelace. There's a very good book by Miranda Seymour, incidentally, about her. Yeah, and I actually, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the feminist writer, Jeanette Winterson. Yes. Um, she was just, she's a friend and she was on the show. She's just written a book, which is about artificial intelligence, but essentially it's a love letter for, I think, from uh, Jeanette to Ada Lovelace. So oh, it's a good, wonderful good. book if you haven't read it. Oh, I'm a great admirer of Jeanette Winterson. We've got something in common, which you'd never guess. What's that? Uh, I'm talking about a day, not a year. Oh, we birthday. Exactly, we share a birthday. We'll have to get you both on the show on your birthday and because I think it'd be a wonderful conversation to have you and Jeanette. Um, one of her friends, uh, one of um, uh, Caroline Norton's friends was was Barbara Baudichon. She was sort of yeah. worked, I, I guess that's an American word, within the burgeoning feminist community. How explicit a feminist was Norton and how central a role did she play in this general emancipation of women in, in the 19th century in England? You have to remember that she's born in 1808. She's 20 years older than them. And she's interested in um, practical solutions for women, like keeping their own money, not being beaten up um, for enslaved women, you know, to be protected. Um, she's not yet of the generation which sees that without the vote, uh, you'll never get anywhere. That belongs to people like Barbara Bodishaw, and they come later. But uh, history develops in this way. And the fact that she didn't bother herself going on about voting um, doesn't mean that if she'd lived 20 years later, she wouldn't have been really keen. And 20 years after that, she'd be marching with the suffragettes because she believed in justice. We always look back, everything in history seems inevitable. And, you know, as a historian, mm. that's anything but true. Things work out in odd ways. 
uh, when we look back at the 19th century, we, we can't imagine how society would have existed to, ex to, to, to exploit women and denigrate women so dramatically. Same, of course, is true of slavery. What about 2022, Antonio? Are there things that are equivalent, particularly when it comes to women? Is there still much emancipation to be done? Um, I think the whole subject of women and children and the workplace is a very interesting one. Um, you know, particularly during lockdown, where women discovered that working from home was jolly convenient. If you have children, you could work hard um, and also be giving childcare. And I think, you see, because I write at home, I have a lot of children, I had a lot of children. Um, uh, I think I was always working from home and I always understood that that made my working life easier. But I think with women and offices, and this is observing it from outside, there's an interesting new stage. I mean, I know a lot of younger people, um, you know, they're talking about doing fewer days in the office, you know, now the pandemic's gone or going, uh, fewer days in office. So I think that's interesting. So that's the revolution, the the, the replacement of the office with the home. I, I don't know if you know my friend Julia Hobsbawm, the daughter of Eric Hobsbawm. Oh, she, yes. I, how, how is she? She's so she's, nice. she's wonderful. And she's coming out with a new book in the in the spring about this transformation. So she seems to think that, um, that it's a profound shift. I'm not sure how explicitly from oh, a female point of view. How interesting that Julia does. I mean, I respect her view and she really know much more than me. This is my, just my sort of instinct. Uh, uh, Norton, uh, sorry, Norton was also a friend of Benjamin Disraeli, uh, many other political figures. Uh, Disraeli, of course, is, is famous for many reasons, including um, his Jewish background. Uh, you were married uh, at one point to Harold Pinter. There's this, I, 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 I still am married to Harold Pinter. I'm oh, you still, is he still alive? No. But oh, I'm, his you... I'm, I'm his widow. Oh, well, I apologize. Well, you're, you're his widow. Um, and, and you have this wonderful piece, actually, I dug up in The Guardian about traveling in 1978 um, to Israel. Tomorrow we have a, uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the American writer Dara Horn on People Love Dead Jews, report from a, a haunted present. It's a book about contemporary anti-Semitism. We've talked a little bit, Antonio, about slavery and Mm. Um, hostility to women and the lack of respect for women in the law. How does the Jewish question, particularly in 19th century England, the fact that Disraeli had to change his religion, how does that fit in in any way to this? Um, well, I don't think it really, I think it is a different, the question of religion is a different one. Incidentally, quoting, I, I published a book called Our Israeli Diary, 1978, which was about the visit. Oh, I have to read that. I'd love to read that. Yeah. What, 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 what was the sort of summary of that in very briefly, that diary? Well, Harold was, uh, I mean, he was a thousand percent Jewish and proud of it, as he would like you to know. Uh, he wasn't observant. He didn't practice religion. And he was very fascinated to know what he would think. It was the first time he'd been, and obviously the first time I'd been. He won I, the Nobel Prize for Literature, of course, didn't he? He did um, in two thousand and five. Um, I'm glad. So, to say. so there's no. So, so again, I'm I'm being a little vulgar here, comparing 
the plight of Jews, with women and blacks. Do you think that's the wrong way of thinking of history? Uh, no, I, I, it depends where. I don't think um, you can compare. Um, I mean, I think the whole subject of Israel, and I'm a great believer in Israel's right to exist, I think the whole subject of Israel is a huge one. And I, I'm not sure you can really compare it um, to the emancipation of slaves, you know. I, I mean, I always want to understand things by going into them. Um, so it worries me slightly. We had, I, I don't know if you, I, I know, I'm sure you're familiar with his books. I'm not sure if you know him. William Dalrymple on the show. Yes, I know him. Uh, also, he, he's perhaps a little bit more critical of the state of Israel, very distinguished historian of India. He has a wonderful new book out on uh, the anarchy about the East India Company and the way yes. in which essentially Britain looted uh, India for a couple of hundred years. We've had a, a number of shows about the decline of the United Kingdom, obviously lots of shows about Brexit. How miserable are things? Uh, I know you're talking to me from your, your old house in uh, Notting Hill, Antonio. How miserable are things in the UK? Is there a sense of decline at the moment? Or is that um, is that just uh, a stereotype? Britain is as strong as ever. Um, I don't really think like that, about Britain being as strong as ever. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I was a Remainer. I voted Remain. Um, but I accept democratically we voted for Brexit. And I'm very interested in how England's going to find her place in Brexit, you know, um, not helped by the arrival of COVID and all of that. Um, I, I, think, I don't think in terms like England's as strong as ever. England's my country and I'm loyal to her and I want her to give justice to everybody. I feel very strongly about it. Uh, English. Mm. And I was interesting that I was reading your book and it, it's it's a positive, it's a happy, in a sense, it's a happy book. I mean, it's a uh, Caroline Norton story is miserable, but it resulted in the, these new laws about women, women's <laughs> rights to own property and custody of children. But it reminded me in my conversation with um, with uh, with William Dalrymple, that this was the time where the Brit British were also looting Ireland. We did a show with um, uh, Geoffrey Wheatcroft about Churchill and his innate racism. So this was still, in many ways, the Britain of the 19th century was a disturbing place. It was two-faced, wasn't it? On the one hand, there were these reforms when it came to women's rights and perhaps the rights of the working class and, and, and expanding the franchise. On the other hand, it was still a deeply colonial society. Uh, yes, but it, 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 if you don't allow um, the idea of progress, I mean, now I've written three books about progress, one about the Great Reform Bill, which enfranchised an enormous amount of people, male, but that would change, and one about Catholic emancipation, about the getting of the vote for, for Catholics. Um, so I think the way to look at history is to also see how things went forward and why they went forward, as well as going backwards. Is there one thing in 2022, in February 2022, that you think is urgent as perhaps the rights of women, property rights, rights to have their children were at the beginning of the 19th century? Um, I, I th think... Um, I think we should solve the question of immigration 
so that there isn't hideous suffering as there is at the moment. Um, you know, people dying, children dying in rubber boats. I think it should be solved in a humane manner. Um, I, I believe that immigration is a human quest, you know, and I, at the same time, the people who are at home have rights too. And I think I would, I would like to see when the pandemic settled, great concentration on that. Well, perhaps we'll get a book from you on that, Antonio. You have so many books and, and, and your latest book is classic Fraser, The Case of the Married Woman, Caroline Norton and Her Fight for Justice for Women. It's readable, it's colorful and it's important and it's, um, and it's accurate, it's, it's, non, it's non-fiction. Uh, even if it sounds a little bit like Agatha Christie, I want to congratulate you, um, Antonio, on the on, on the book and on on your prolific career. It's a real honor to talk to you. Finally, um, in addition to your new book, as I said, it's coming out in the U.S. in May. It's already out in the U.K. and I'm sure in many foreign markets. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Do you have any other book recommendations? Uh, you, you're you're still in London and you're in your home in Notting Hill. You said you've been living there for many years, so I'm sure you're surrounded by books. I'm surrounded by books, thank goodness. Um, well, I've just read a frightfully good book, which I think would interest you very much. It's by Andrew Roberts, and it's George III, Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. That's the subtitle. And mm. I think it's fascinating. Uh, apart from anything else, he points out how George III wrote an essay denouncing slavery, which I never knew. It's all there in the book. Mm, Andrew Roberts on the show. Uh, he, he, it'd be interesting to have a debate between him and um, Jeffrey Wheatcroft on, on Churchill. They disagree on that one. But that's a very good suggestion. Anything else, Antonio? I think you should wear a hard, hard hat if you chair that one. <laughs> I like hard hats. I always wear a hard hat. That's my role in life. <laughs> and anything um, else in addition to George III? Or is that it? on the Antonia Fraser reading list. Well, oddly enough, there's another biography, because um, I love biographies, um, absolutely different about George V by Jane Ridley. It's completely different. Book. Yeah, someone else was recommending that. I think, uh, actually, I, I think Dalrymple recommended that. So we'll have to do yes, that one too. Jane Ridley is a very good, interesting writer. She wrote Life of Edward VII called Bertie. And George V, she really does it in effect, as a double biography of George V and Queen Mary. And I think you'd have a very good time. Anyone would have a very good time reading it. Well, we'll have to get her. A real honour, Antonia Fraser. Thank you so much for a wonderfully far, free-ranging, far-ranging conversation for putting up with my silly questions. And I'd love to have you back on the show, maybe with Jeanette Winterson, maybe with Julia Hobsbawm. There's so much more to discuss. Thank you. Keep well, keep writing, keep being Thank Antonia you. Fraser. We need you. Thank you. I loved it.